Hello and welcome to the Flint Catholic Podcast. I'm Father Tony Smila. And I'm Michael Hasso. And now, welcome to the election episodes. Last week we did the encyclical episode. Today is the election episode. And today we're dealing with the USCCB document, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, a call to political responsibility from the Catholic bishops of the United States. And this is, I think, a good time to talk about this because I, I think there's something important happening on November 3rd. I don't remember what it is, though. Yeah, there might be. Yeah. You might have seen one or two commercials on YouTube or yeah, wherever. Those are, <laughs> yeah, for all those who don't use ad blockers. Yeah. For sure. Ad blockers for the win. Um, yeah, so we got an election coming up. And so the question is, how do we vote as Catholics? What are the principles that we need to keep in mind as we get ready to vote here? And, you know... There's, there's a little bit of tension out there. There's a little bit of uh, perhaps um, conflict out there over this election. It's a very highly contested election, and it's interesting to actually hear political pundits talk about the Catholic vote so much. Um, it's such an important vote that I think the last four elections, um, the Catholic vote, whoever has won the Catholic vote has won the election. And so there certainly is... Uh, uh, an important part that we Catholics can play and influence that we can have on the political system. So it's important to know how should we vote, especially as Catholics. And so we're just going to go through this document and, and take a look at it and see what it says, what our bishops have told us about voting. And um, and I think they're, they're really good. They're spot on. And um, we're looking at the principles of voting, the principles of the election. And first of all, I'd like to say, too, that how great is it that we can live in a country like this where we can really hash out these issues via the voting booth? Um, I love that about this country. And, you know, certainly the, the tensions can get high with with such high stakes with, with the things that we're voting on. But to be able to do this in, in a really organized and, and respectful way, well, mostly respectful, um, I think is important. And the fact that we can play a role and in influence in, in making this something civil is really important and really helpful. So, yeah, definitely. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is um, paragraph nine in the document. We're just going to jump right in and kind of walk through the document with you. And, and paragraph nine starts, why does the church teach about issues affecting public policy? Like, why does the church jump in to politics at all, right? Aren't we concerned with Jesus Christ alone and, and that should be it? Well, yeah, we are concerned with Jesus, but we're also concerned with politics. And because politics shapes our society. So in, in paragraph nine, it starts, the church's obligation to participate in shaping the moral character of society is a requirement of our faith. And I love how really forceful they are with this. It is a requirement of our faith to participate in shaping the moral character of society. You know, who do we want to be as an American people? Is so It's so important for us to be a part of that, to be out there in the world, and to, to influence and participate in the political process in the midst of that. Yeah, and one of the things that came to my mind reading this was just Jesus's call at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't just say make disciples of all peoples of, you know, different cultural groups, different, um, you know, different localities. He says to make disciples of all nations. And through our voting, that's one of the ways that we make disciples of our nation. That's right. We just make make it so that we are in a position where we can influence the culture towards God, towards Jesus. And so uh, if we move forward then to paragraph 14, you know, we influence politics, but we don't let politics 
influence us. So unfortunately, as the bishops say, unfortunately, politics in our country can often be a contest of powerful interests, partisan attacks, sound bites, and media hype. I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I've never seen that before. I've never seen that either. Anyway, whatever. Uh, The church calls for a different kind of political engagement, one shaped by the moral convictions of well-formed consciences and focused on the dignity of every human being, the pursuit of the common good, the protection of the weak and the vulnerable. That's really good, right? As citizens, we should be guided more by our moral convictions than our attachment to a political party or interest group. Now, that sentence is important because we really want to, there's there's a tendency and, and I think a temptation in our day to become attached to that political party like I'm attached to the Michigan Wolverines football team, right? There's a, there's an atten- a, a tendency to, to make our political party part of our tribe. And that's certainly not something we want to do, right? If, if political party goes awry, we should have the freedom to say, you know what, I'm done with that. That's a bunch of crap and I'm not following that and I'm not voting for that. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the keys too to to not being swayed by the politics or the different rhetoric that's going on in the culture is that we need to really do our research before we before we head into the voting booth. We need to not be voting based on what somebody else tells us, whatever affiliation that might be. We need to we need to look beyond just the ads that we get in the mail or on TV or, or wherever else, we really need to, to dive deep into those issues and find out what's really going on. That's correct. It's important for us too, I think, to not just inform ourselves on one side, right? But to be all constantly looking at that both sides. So we should be checking CNN and Fox News, or you could just ditch both of them too. You could <laughs> do that as well. Um, but to, to really, you know, to see an argument, not just from the side you want to be on, but from all sides, how does my opponent think of this argument? How do people that I disagree with think of this argument? Where are they coming from? And and how can I understand where they're coming from? So that's the kind of research we're talking about. We're not just looking at, you know, how can I, you know, can I find the top 10, um, you know, gaffes by this politician on YouTube, which may be fun at times, but <laughs> but that's not really doing your research, right? Doing the research is, is really seeing how does, how do people that I disagree with think about this topic and do I then can I really fuller fuller more fully understand where they're coming from and maybe even sway my opinion on that maybe not maybe it helps me then to be able to defend my position better but I need to know how the people my my opponents think of, of of a certain topic as well yeah and I think another um important aspect of this is being mindful of as Christians how do we speak about the politicians that we disagree with. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's a big one, especially like when you're surrounded by most likely a fair amount of friends who may agree with your your certain political um, affiliations or ideas. Um, it can be really easy to get into a sort of gossip or, you know, you know, just all sorts of different, um, we'll just say not nice right. conversation. So... Perhaps, you know, one of the topics we'll be talking about here is the dignity of every human person. And yeah. that includes the politicians we disagree with. Yeah. That's that's kind of a radical statement I'm making right there, I think. I don't yeah. know. You know, at least hearing the rhetoric out there, that seems like a, a really um, crazy radical statement that, yeah, even political opponents uh, have human dignity. 
Yeah, I think that would be a, a pretty radical Christian viewpoint on politics. Be, to be actually cool. believe the opposing side has human dignity. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that um, we mentioned in that last paragraph, it talked about a well-formed conscience. So we, we should really dive into that. What does it mean then to have a well-formed conscience? And so in paragraph 17 of the document, the church equips its members to address political and social questions by helping them to develop a well-formed conscience. Catholics have a serious and lifelong obligation to form their consciences in accord with human reason and the teaching of the church. The conscience is not something that allows us to justify doing whatever we want, nor is it a mere, is it a mere feeling about what we should or should not do. And that piece is important, right? Because sometimes we think of our conscience as just, uh, is, does this feel right? And it's not that at all. Rather, conscience is the voice of God resounding in the human heart revealing the truth to us and calling us to do what is good while shunning what is evil. Now, let me ask you a question, and not to put you on the spot, this may be a very difficult question. If we don't know what God's voice sounds like, can we hear the voice of God? Hmm. That's a tough one, right? So really, the duty to well-form our conscience means that we need to actually know what God's voice sounds like. We need to take that time in prayer and hear the voice of God over and over again so that on these issues and on, on all issues, then God can speak to us directly and say, no, this is not something you should do. Yes, this is something you should do. And we know then that it's not me just trying to justify doing whatever I want to do because it feels good, right? So it's God speaking to us. And of course, he always wants to speak to us. But then, on, especially on these issues, he wants to direct our lives in what is good, true, beautiful, and keep us away from things that don't. So we have to be able to know God's voice to be able to well-form our conscience. And, and I like that the document even goes um, further and says, the formation of conscience includes several elements. So they even spell out what it means to do that. First, there is a desire to embrace goodness and truth. Now, that's, that's a great way to start. For Catholics, this begins with a willingness and openness to seek the truth and what is right by studying sacred scripture and the teachings of the church as contained in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So that means you have to be willing to be wrong. Now, I've never been wrong in my life, so I don't know what that's like, but we have to be willing to be wrong and to say, you know what, I've been wrong for a long time about this, and I'm willing to change now my opinion on this. And I think that's a hugely important piece. And I think that's a piece that, that unfortunately can be lacking in today's political discourse. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't, I don't see a lot of, uh, politicians that are willing to acknowledge that they're wrong about something. No, um, not at all. I think we have, we do have a local example of that though. Uh, Justin Amash in Michigan, he recently changed his party. He was Republican and I think he went to independent. I don't think he went to Democrat. I think he became an independent, uh, but he was willing to say, you know what? Uh, my party is not the party that I thought it was. And so now I'm leaving the Republican Party. I'm changing um, because of things that have happened in my life and the, and the way he's gone through the issues himself. And so, I mean, there's one example. Yeah. That's all I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the first step. Um, it is also important to examine the facts and background information about various choices. Finally, prayerful reflection is essential to discern the will of God. Mm. Now this is starting to sound like a theological piece. Catholics must also understand that if they fail to form their consciences in the light of the truths of the faith and the moral teachings of the church, 
they can make erroneous judgments. Yeah. That's yep. a big one there. That is a big one. Yeah. Because it's so easy when you, you know, as Christians, we often talk about prayer and the necessity of prayer in making decisions. But sometimes that can come to the neglect of things like, you know, using our brain to know what's right and wrong, using reason. Um, and so it's not just prayer and then reason is the separate thing that, you know, as Christians, we just throw out. They actually need to be working in a healthy way together to discern what's right. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're discerning, you know, what are the things that we're discerning, right? We're not discerning the color of the wallpaper in the House <laughs> of Congress, right? We're not, we're not discerning small things, but we're discerning big things in society. And unfortunately, things that we have to discern about and, and talk about and be part of our uh, public discourse is things such as intrinsic evils. And so the document talks about what is an intrinsically evil action. And, and that's an important thing, too, because we are the things that we are voting on include intrinsically evil actions. And this, this document um, calls out abortion in particular. And it really um, hits heavy, like abortion is an intrinsically evil action and must always be rejected and opposed and must never be supported or condoned in any way, shape or form. So when we're talking about intrinsically evil actions, we're talking about things such as abortion, which is the preeminent issue in our day. So the document says there are th some things we must never do as individuals or as a society because they are always incompatible with the love of God and neighbor. Always incompatible. Such actions are so deeply flawed that they are always opposed to the authentic good of persons. Now, these are called intrinsically evil actions. A prime example is the intentional taking of human of innocent human life as in abortion and euthanasia. And so they, you know, they even say that the abortion and euthanasia have become the preeminent threat to human dignity because they directly attack life itself, the most fundamental human good and condition for all the others. So intrinsic moral evil is something that can never, ever be, uh, supported or condoned, it must always be rejected and opposed. And we see that, especially abortion, we see that um, in our politics. It's a huge, huge piece in our politics. Now, when we talk about things such as uh, intrinsically evil action, does that mean then that any party who supports an intrinsically evil action can never be voted for? And, and I think the answer is no. Um, there are certain cases where we certainly can um, support a party that that opposes an in, or that uh, condones an intrinsically evil action. So something we have to look at is um, the weight of each issue. So not all issues are of equal weights, right? So we we have um, perhaps we could have an example where you have a politician who supports an intrinsically evil action, but then everything else that they support, is good and something that we would agree with. Can we vote for that person? And I think the answer is it depends, right? Yeah. It depends on, on a lot of things. How much power does that person have to actually affect the intrinsically evil thing, right? If we're, if we're um, voting on local dog catcher and, <laughs> and they have an, uh, an abortion platform, pro-abortion platform, well, I think you're okay in voting for the dog catcher because um, they, they don't have any influence in the issue of abortion anyway. Yeah. If we're talking about 
the highest position in the land, the president. Well, okay, now now we're talking about someone who really can uh, push their thumb on the scale uh, of this issue and really talk about, okay, this person can really affect this issue. And so you have to keep that um, in balance with, with everything else. So the document talks about two temptations in public life that can distort the church's defense of human life and dignity. And this is in, cha- in paragraph 27. The first is the moral equivalence that makes no ethical distinctions between different kinds of issues involving human life and dignity. So when we talk about abortion a lot, but abortion is not the only human uh, life and dignity issue out there. The direct and intentional destruction of innocent human life from the moment of conception until natural death is always wrong and is not just one issue among many. It must always be opposed. So that is an intrinsic evil. But the second is the misuse of these necessary moral distinctions as a way of dismissing or ignoring other serious threats to human life and dignity. The current and projected extent of environmental degradation has become a moral crisis, especially because it poses a risk to humanity in the future and threatens the lives of poor and vulnerable human persons here and now. Racism and other unjust discrimination, the use of the death penalty, resorting to unjust war, the use of torture, war crimes, the failure to respond to those who are suffering from hunger or a lack of health care, pornography, redefining civil marriage, comprising religious liber- compromising religious liberty, or an unjust immigration policy are all serious moral issues that challenge our consciences and require us to act. These are not optional concerns which can be dismissed. So the Catholics are seriously urged to consider the church's teaching on these issues. So that's a lot of issues we just named, yeah. and they're all really important. <laughs> yeah. So and 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 it seems like to me that a lot of you know one party is really good at some of these, one party is really good on some of these other issues, and how do we weigh them? And so that's what we as Catholics and individuals have to really balance and weigh when we're we're looking at individual um, choices and people to vote for. Whew, that was a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that is. But I would say, you know, what might help listeners to simplify this is to maybe think about what's the big overarching issue that's like right at the heart of virtually all of these that were just named. And that's the dignity of the human person. And so I would I would say that when you're considering who to vote for, I think it probably needs to start with the dignity of the human person and what platforms align with that the most. That's a great point. And that really segues well into our next section. So we're going to talk about next the four principles uh, of voting that the, the document lays out, which starts with number one, the dignity of the human person. We'll do that right after the announcements here. And here we have our announcements for this week. So we have St. Mary and St. Joseph Parish in Durand and Gaines invites you to an hour of prayer on October 23rd in the Durand location. This is an opportunity to ask God to continue to bless our diocese with special, with spiritual, physical, and emotional healing for an abundance of vocations and that more people would be brought into a beautiful relationship with unconditional love. Again, This is on October 23rd from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at the Durand location. And uh, 
I might as well just uh, promo one of our competitors, but you know they don't have to be a competitor. You can listen to us both. The Diocese of Lansing now has a podcast as well. The communications department of the Diocese of Lansing is now producing a weekly podcast because they saw how well we were doing and they wanted to copy us. Uh, I'm sure that's what it was. The latest edition discussed the week's, this week's Diocese of Lansing Rosary Congress entitled The Power, Provenance, and Practicalities of the Holy Rosary. You can download it from any podcast outlet, including Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch it on the Diocese of Lansing YouTube channel. And as long as you're over there as well and doing doing that, you might as well subscribe and like our podcast as well. Give us a five-star review and uh, share it with your friends. So what does the church say about Catholic social teaching in the public square? And here we're going to talk about the four principles of Catholic social teaching. So we're starting with, if you're following along, we're starting in paragraph 44, and we get to the very first uh, principle, which is the dignity of the human person. Human life is sacred. The dignity of the human person is the foundation of a moral vision for society. So direct attacks on innocent persons are never morally acceptable at any stage or in any condition. In our society, human life is especially under direct attack from abortion, which some political actors mischaracterize as an issue of women's health. Other direct threats to the sanctity of human life include euthanasia and assisted suicide, sometimes falsely labeled as death with, dig with dignity, human cloning, in vitro fertilization, and the destruction of human embryos for research. Now, that's a lot of different pieces there, but it's so important that from conception to natural death, we uphold the dignity of the human person, and any attack on that is never acceptable, even when they try and couch it in nice language. You notice twice there they mention that um, there's a mischaracterization or, or sometimes a, a mislabeling of the issue just to try and obfuscate what actually is happening there, right? Because death with dignity sounds a lot better than assisted suicide it doesn't get to the point of what it actually is. You know, abortion is, is not, shouldn't be characterized as women's health when another human life is taken. And so we see that a lot in our society today where we see these mischaracterizations, these mislabels only in order to just obfuscate what, no, that's not really what it's about, but it actually is. And we can never really accept that anything but the absolute dignity of every single person. Yeah, and I think that's where it comes back to what we were saying before about research. Um, because of these things like this mislabeling of abortion as, as a women's health issue um, or other, I mean, there's too many things to even to, to even list them all because it's, it's all over the place. And truthfully, it's both sides doing it. Of course, of course. So it's not, you know, it's not like you can easily sift through all of this stuff. It, it takes a little bit of work. And so we see um, the, the document lays out even more. We see opposing torture, unjust war, the indiscriminate use of drones for violent per purposes, ge uh, genocide, attacks against noncombatants, racism, human trafficking, uh, overcoming poverty, suffering, all of these things that, you know, as if we looked at it, we're like, yeah, of course, we'd, we'd want to do that. But we still see it happening over and over again in our society. And, and we still need to stand up and oppose these things. And, and, and really support human dignity at every single moment. So we move on to the second, uh, second one um, principle, which is subsidiarity. And 
this is uh, this is an interesting one because now we're we're talking about society. We're talking about how we're organized as a society in a time where we're very confused about that, in a time where we're socially distanced at the moment and and we can't really be with each other the way we'd like to do it. The human person is not only sacred but also social. Full human development takes place in relationship with others. The family, based on marriage between a man and a woman, is the first and fundamental unit of society and is a sanctuary for the creation and nurturing of children. It should be defended, strengthened, not redefined, undermined, or further distorted. Respect for the family should be reflected in every policy and program. It is important to uphold parents' rights and responsibilities to care for their children, including the right to choose their children's education. Now, coming from, uh, I just came from teaching at Powers and at St. John Vianney, and I'd say, yes, we should absolutely have parents give parents the right to choose their children's education. Not because I want to see Catholic schools flourish, which I do, but because they should absolutely have the, if there's a, they're in a school district that's terrible, they should have the right to send their kids to a school that's thriving, that works for them. Not all education systems work for everybody. So that's a big one right there. That's one that, that kind of gets me on my soapbox, if you haven't noticed, uh, is, is the school of choice, um, allowing parents to give the, give the parents the right to choose how and where their children are educated. But we see all of these issues um, of the family, the family being the basic unit of society, that should always be defended and upheld at every moment. Marriage between a man and a woman and, and the um, respect for the family should be uh, very highly encouraged in our society. Yeah, and this is really where discipleship starts. That's that's part of why um, the family is so so central to um, you know everything we believe as Christians, because you know the church recognizes that we have this need um, to form disciples in our families in particular, and so sometimes, oftentimes, especially lately, um, there are attacks. Uh, through different legislation and different political groups on the family. So our third uh, principle is the common good. Human dignity is respected and the common good is fostered only if human rights are protected and basic responsibilities are met. Every human being has a right to life, the fundamental right that makes all other rights possible, and a right to access those things required for human decency. Food, shelter, education, employment, health care, housing, freedom of religion, and family life. And so we see just here are the rights of humans. And it's important to recognize, too, that rights are not given to us by the government. Rights are given to us by God. These are the things that God has given us a right to. And certainly as humans, we can we can stifle those in other people. We can limit those in other people. But we would be creating a grave injustice when we do that. And so we're not giving the government, you know, all of these, the, the ability to give us these rights. Government doesn't have the ability to give us these rights. It's God who gives us these rights. And as a government, it's the government's duty to recognize those rights given to us by God. Yeah, it's really funny that you say that about how God gives us these rights. Because I remember one time I was in, um, I was in a theology class, actually, and my professor was talking about the Constitution and how it says, um, how it says that it's self-evident that all men are created equal, and he made a particular note. There's nothing that could be less self-evident oh, wow. because God gave it. It's not something that that we just know apart from God. 
it's it's a part of the revelation yeah. that was entrusted to us as Christians. Yeah, it's true. Because if you look at human history, we we don't recognize that hardly anywhere in the, all of human history. We are one of the few places in the history of the world where we actually recognize that truth. But it is true, and God has revealed it to us. I love that 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 it's not that self evident. It's self evident in 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 a Christian moral society. Yeah, and and that's because God has revealed it to us. But now we're starting to see maybe it's not so self-evident. And maybe that means we are floating away from that Christian moral society that we once had. Yeah, definitely. So that takes us to our fourth uh, fourth principle, and that is solidarity. Solidarity. And so this is in paragraph 52, and it says, We are one human family, whether our na- national, racial, ethnic, economic, and ideological, whatever our... Oh, man, I'm going to say that again. Let's try that again. We are one human family, whatever our national, racial, ethnic, economic, and ideological differences. We are our brothers and sisters keepers, wherever they may be. That's an important point, right? I mean, that's the that's right out of the mouth of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. You just killed him. And so we need to take care of our brothers and sisters. We need to love our neighbor. And this, this says, and, and I like this too, right? There's not just our neighbors right next door to us, but there are global dimensions to this as well. And so we must do what we can to eradicate racism, address the extreme poverty and disease plaguing so much of the world. So they continue. Solidarity also includes a scriptural call to welcome the stranger among us, including immigrants seeking work by ensuring that they have opportunities for safe home, education for their children, and a decent life for their families by and by ending the practice of separating families through deportation. In light of the gospel's invitation to be peacemakers, our commitment to solidarity with our neighbors at home and abroad also demands that we promote peace and pursue justice in a world marred by terrible violence and conflict. So, Basically, it's the scriptural call to treat the neighbor um, as human beings, right? I mean, a lot of these can just boil down to the dignity of the human person. Treat them like humans. Give them everything they need. If we have something and they don't, we need to be able to give that to them. Yeah, and, you know, being fresh off of our episode on Fratelli Tutti, um, Correct. I feel like this is this is almost like straight out of the mouth of Pope Francis or vice versa. Are you talking about the document Fratelli Tutti? Yep, that's the one. Okay, that's what I thought. That's what I thought I heard you say. Yeah, and it, I don't know, it It really, um, you know, I, I couldn't help but think of um, of the Good Samaritan and how, how Pope Francis walked through that and the importance of that. And really, the United States bishops here are really just spelling that out, what it looks like for us as citizens of this world, how it's not just, you know, yes, there are those instances where you might see that person along the road that you that God is calling you to help. Um, but there's also a global dimension to this. Yes. In paragraph 53, they mentioned one of my favorite phrases, and it's the church's preferential option for the poor. This is the way we should really see a lot of that social justice we think about and the way we treat those around us. There should always be a preferential option for the poor. The common good embraces all those who are weak, vulnerable, and most in need. They deserve preferential concern. And so before we do anything else in our politics, how are we treating the poor? How are we treating the vulnerable? This is, again, why abortion is one of the preeminent issues, because there is no one on this planet more vulnerable than an unborn child. 
So we need to go out and protect them. And so how are we treating those in most need around us? And that really shows what is the moral fiber of our society that really illuminates to us, okay, who are we as a people and how are we treating the most vulnerable around us? Do we have structures and are we able to help them? And, and in local communities, are they able to come together and out of their own generosity prepare or provide for those around them? Yeah, this is huge, especially when you look to the lives of the saints. You know, it it almost doesn't matter which saint you look to. When you look at their life, there's almost this, um, you know, dare I say, universal sort of um, draw to the poor, yeah. which is so huge and so um, so attractive, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's even great, greater about the saints is they didn't wait for the government to do it for them. They just went and did it. So it's important for us to put pressure on our government to help the poor and the vulnerable. They just went out and did it. And yeah. that's important as well, right? So we can't abdicate our abdicate our responsibility for our preferential option of the poor to the government. We got to do it ourselves. And that's what creates a moral society. And so that when that moral society sees, okay, this is what we're going to be as a people, then we start to see that reflected in government. Again, politics being a reflection of our faith. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also this issue in particular, you start to see why the church doesn't take a particular political stance, because ultimately it's like, yes, we do need our government to, um, you know, show this preferential option for the poor as well. But ultimately, we're saying as Christians, the true responsibility is on us. And so we can never hand that over to the government. So that's where you can't. You can't really say like, you know, one party or the other because there there truly are um, different aspects of this that play out in different, um, you know, political uh, parties. Yep. So that really takes us to the end of the first part. And I'm going to actually entirely skip the second part and encourage you to read it on your own. What the second part is, is the document goes through each individual issue and just talks about it a little bit. So if you want to know more about each individual issue, or maybe there's one particular issue you want to know more about, go ahead, dive into the document. It's right there on the front page of the USCCB website. Uh, If you download the PDF, you get it for free. Um, So what I really want to do is just quickly turn to part three. Part three is goals for political life, challenges for citizens, candidates, and public officials. What I like about this section is it's basically if the Catholic Church were a political platform, what would it look like? So we had the the DNC, we had the RNC, and now we got the CNC, the Catholic (laughs) National Conference. So so this this is the platform for for the Catholic Party. And, And really, you know, I would love to see a candidate who just used this as their political platform and and that would be something you know really neat to see that's something i think we need to really encourage people out there to to consider doing get active in the political life and and use this platform as your own platform Um, and it's a really good platform it's one that that upholds all four principles dignity of the human person subsidiarity the common good and solidarity and so I'm just going to quickly run through what that platform looks like. I think it's fantastic. I don't have much issue with it. 
So the first, first one is keep our nation from turning to violence to address fundamental problems. A million abortions each year to deal with unwanted pregnancies, euthanasia, and assisted suicide to deal with the burdens of illness and disability, the destruction of human embryos in the name of research, the use of the death penalty to combat crime, and imprudent resort to war to address international disputes. So stop the violence. It's a good start. Protect the fundamental understanding of marriage as the lifelong and faithful union of one man and one woman and as the central institution of society. Promote the complementarity of the sexes and reject false gender ideologies and provide better support for family life morally, socially, and economically so that our nation helps parents raise their children with respect for life, sound moral values, and an ethic of stewardship and responsibility. Achieve comprehensive immigration reform that offers a path to citizenship, treats immigrant workers fairly, fairly prevents the separation of families, maintains the in integrity of our borders, respects the rule of law, and addresses the factors that compel people to leave their own countries. Help families and, work and children to overcome poverty, ensuring access to and choice in education, as well as decent work at fair living wages and adequate assistance for the vulnerable in our nation while also helping to overcome widespread hunger and poverty around the world, especially in the areas of, developmental, of development assistance, debt relief, and international trade. Provide healthcare while respecting human life, human dignity, and religious freedom in our healthcare system. Continue to oppose policies that reflect prejudice, hostility toward immigrants, religious bigotry, and other forms of unjust discrimination. Encourage families, community groups, economic structures, and government to work together to overcome poverty, pursue the common good, care for creation, with full respect for individuals and groups, and their right to address social needs in accord with their basic moral and religious convictions. Establish and comply with moral limits on the use of military force, examining for what purposes it may be used, under what authority, and at what human cost, with a special view to seeking a responsible and effective response for ending the persecution of Christians and other religious minorities in the Middle East and other parts of the world, and join with others around the world to pursue peace, protect human rights and religious liberty, and advance economic justice and care for creation. I'd vote for that platform. Yeah, me too. So really what we want to encourage you to do is to really take this moment seriously to really dive into research, know what the issues are, know what the candidates stand for, um, and take it to prayer as well. Ask the Lord to help you form your conscience in this. Don't, don't ask him to, to change his conscience to yours, but allow your conscience to fit his plan for our nation, for our life. Pray for our country. We have one of the greatest countries in the world, and I believe it's because it's based in freedom, freedom and human dignity. We don't we don't uh, follow it all the time. We don't live up to that that great call we have all the time, um, but we have something special here, and, and it's worth fighting for, and it's worth keeping. So let's let's um, vote well on November third, and and allow the Lord to be a part of that. Yeah, definitely. And one last thing that I would leave all you listeners with is just what Father Tony had mentioned before, and I think it's such good advice. When, especially when you're looking at some of the local candidates, don't just, you know, look beyond some of the things that might, you know, otherwise deter you and look at what what do they really have influence over and how does that align with what the church teaches? Yeah. 
And I'd say, especially with local people, because they're local, they're more accessible. So schedule yeah. schedule a meeting with them, talk to them, see see what they actually believe in, and whether they would actually um, have the area of influence that 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 you want them to have. They're usually available. Yeah, and that's ultimately where we often have the most influence. That's right. So it makes sense that that's where we need to start. That's right. Yeah, because in the national election, my vote is one vote in the midst of millions. Yeah. And in local elections, it can be just a couple thousand. Yeah. And so we certainly have a lot more influence there. And that's ultimately where change begins. Yep. You know, it begins at the grassroots level. That's right. So vote November 3rd and do it well with the Lord.